Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed's deep dive into classic musicals. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Fling, on the artistic staff here at Goodspeed, and I'm joined by my brilliant colleague, the one and only Annika Chapin. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm very good, thank you, and I'm very excited for this week. I'm excited and scared for this week. So with that, what's in the spotlight this week, Annika? In the spotlight this week is Into the Woods, a very important musical for both of us, I know, and for many other people, which opened on Broadway in 1987 and was written by James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim. I'm kind of nervous. I also am very nervous about this one. I feel like we have such a duty to our love of the show and to how important this show is to yeah. each of us personally. I, I feel like this sense of obligation to get it right. Me too. I'm also nervous because Sondheim is such a titanic force in theater, but also in terms of analyzing and talking about Sondheim shows, this single episode of this podcast could be five hours long and we would still have plenty more to discuss. So there's just so much. It's so rich, this one. There's so much to dive in and talk about that we're going to do our best. It deserves many more hours than we are able to give it. Yes. Yes, indeed. So that brings us to our brief refresher on what happens in Into the Woods. We're going to do this a little differently than we do normally because it's so intricate. It's hard to recount everything that happens without taking 15 minutes. So I'm going to do my best to give a brief reminder of what happens in Into the Woods. So essentially, we have three main stories we're following. One, Cinderella. Two, Jack and the Beanstalk. And three, the baker and his wife. So I'm going to give a quick summary of each story, and then we'll go from there. Cinderella wishes to go to the King's Festival. Her stepmother throws lentils into the ashes for her to pick up and promises that if she completes that task in two hours, Cinderella can attend the festival. With the aid of her bird friends, Cinderella accomplishes the task, but her stepfamily insists she is too dirty to go with them, leaving her at home. Jack is wishing for his cow, Milky White, to produce milk. He's very close with his cow, considering it a pet and a friend. But Jack's mother decides that Jack must go to market and sell Milky White. Since she's not producing milk, they have no choice but to sell her so they can buy food. The baker and his wife wishing for a child. They're soon visited by Little Red Riding Hood, who stops by to buy a loaf of bread and some treats to take to her grandmother's house in the woods. After Little Red departs, their next-door neighbor, the witch, arrives and informs the couple that in the past, the baker's father had stolen some greens from her garden to feed his pregnant wife. In exchange for the food, the witch demanded they pay her by giving her the forthcoming baby. The narrator lets us know that that baby is the baker's sister, Rapunzel. The witch continues and tells the baker and his wife that the baker's father had also stolen special beans from her garden. As payback, she has placed a curse on the baker's family that they would be barren after the birth of his sister. However, she can reverse the curse with a potion that requires... The cow as white as milk, the cape as red as blood, the hair as yellow as corn, and the slipper as pure as gold. And she must have them before the chime of midnight in three days. For all three of our stories to get their wishes, they must go into the woods. Of course, the aforementioned cow should be milky white, the cape belongs to Little Red, the hair belongs to Rapunzel, and the slipper belongs to Cinderella. 
In the woods, we meet a plethora of characters, including a wolf who is determined to eat Little Red and her granny, two princes who pine after Cinderella and Rapunzel, Rapunzel herself, and the spirit of Cinderella's mother who gives Cinderella a beautiful ball gown and the aforementioned slippers. Most notably, we encounter the mysterious man who comes to the aid of the baker who has many roadblocks in collecting the various ingredients. The baker's wife, knowing the forgetfulness of her husband, asserts herself into the mission to collect the ingredients. They exchange beans with Jack to obtain the cow. The baker saves Little Red from the belly of the wolf, and as a token of her appreciation, Little Red gives the baker the cape. The baker's wife takes some of Rapunzel's hair to be the hair as yellow as corn, and she negotiates with Cinderella for the use of her other slipper. The rest of Act 1 takes place over the three days, and all the characters interact with each other as the existing fairy tales unfold as we know them, and the baker and his wife continue their mission. At the end of the third day, with all the items in hand, the baker and his wife deliver the ingredients to the witch. As the witch is brewing the potion, we discover that the mysterious man is actually the baker's father. He dies as the witch finishes the potion and is subsequently transformed into her younger self, though she loses all her magical power. At the beginning of Act 2, the wife of the giant that Jack slayed comes down on another beanstalk to enact revenge and kill Jack. She destroys the village and much of the woods, and the narrator, Jack's mother, Rapunzel, and the baker's wife die over the course of the act. The witch disappears into the ground. We don't really know if she dies or what happens to her. And the baker, Cinderella, Little Red, and Jack team up to defeat the giant using their collective brain and the help of Cinderella's birds and subsequently kill the giant. With the enemy defeated and peace restored, the baker, Cinderella, Jack, and Little Red start a new life and help the baker learn how to be a proper parent for his young baby. And that brings us to the segment, Why God, Why? Why God? Why today? Where we start to examine what is the driving force that makes this show happen? Why does it exist? What's it trying to say? And usually we have one big takeaway, uh, but Into the Woods presents a very interesting case. So we're attacking the segment a little differently than we might normally, where Annika and I have differing points of view on what is the driving force of the show, but the authors do as well. So we thought it was a totally fair conversation to have. So Annika, what do you think is the driving force of Into the Woods? Well, I would have to say that for me, the real engine of the plot is parents and children, and specifically the concept of growing up and learning to move beyond your sheltered environment and out into the world where there's much harsher factors at play. When I was rereading it, I was really struck by how almost every single major character and major plot has a parent or child theme. There's a lot of parents that are lost. There's a lot of parents that are found, sort of. There's a lot of mentions of parents, even in a story like Cinderella, which in the original Grimm, she does have a mother who has died, who provides her with sort of emotional help from beyond the grave. But that's not what we think of as being a major point in that story. But these writers have added that plot as a major element for their Cinderella. So I think they're really making a point that growing up and parents and children are the engines of this show in my mind. Which is a totally fair point. And I, the thing that I come back to is really this idea of community responsibility. 
and that we are as responsible for everyone in our community as we are for ourselves and the consequences of the choices that we make and how that impacts the community around us. The thing that I find that connects every single character in the show is are, are the choices that they make toward the community around them. Yeah, certainly. And the, I mean, I think what's true about this is that we're not in any disagreement that these are both major elements of this show. It's just what we couldn't decide was which one was the sort of fundamental spine of the show. But I think this is a, a something, and the reason that I wanted to include this debate rather than us figuring it out off microphone was because I think any great show is, is going to have a lot going on. Um, and when you get to the era of Sondheim, what we're really talking about is, I think it speaks to a level of psychological complexity that weaves throughout his shows there's just a lot going on in this show. Your production could focus on the community responsibility element. Mine could could focus on the growing up and the idea of parents and children. And we could both turn out really stunning productions of this show. It's These are both in there to such a degree. And it's interesting, Sondheim in Look, I Made a Hat, which is a must-have book for any theater nerd, he talks about this dichotomy in the show. And uh, he says, quote, all folktales have an axiom to grind. A folktale without a moral is merely a whimsy. And because the show dealt with a number of these tales, we felt an obligation to center the evening on one prevailing idea. Examining things as best we could while they were out of town, we saw that our narrative primarily illustrated two, the relationship between parents and children, which pervade the stories we chose, and the notion of community responsibility, which dictates or is dictated by the plot. So it's such an interesting thing that we, before we even dove into the research, we started to have this debate about what it was about. And so we wanted to share that with all of you because it felt like, and then I, we found that quote and I was like, wow, I guess Annika and I are geniuses. Um, <laughs> but no, but truly, like I found that quote and I was like, wow, okay. So even the authors are acknowledging that there are really two driving forces here and the adaptation and the focus of the adaptation of these stories is about parental and child relationship and how that weaves through. And that certainly is the backbone of the Baker and the Baker's wife story, which they invented to connect these things together. Meanwhile, the actions of the community and community responsibility end up being the driving force, certainly in act two, where we're forced to reckon with the consequences of the choices we make in order to have children or because of our children, because of our parents fill in the blank. Yeah, I think it also speaks to something that I've always found true with Sondheim shows, which is that as you go through your own life and you reach different levels of adulthood, of experience, there are certain shows that kind of come into and out of focus for you in a way. There are Sondheim shows that I have not been able to fully experience at certain points in my life because it feels too sensitive. This was a show that I loved as a child. And then for a while, when I was kind of a young teenager, I didn't really want to know that fairy tales don't come true when I, when I started to, to realize how complex it was in the same way that like Merrily Roll Along was hard for me after college because the idea of a bunch of characters who after college are like, I have these big dreams that are all going to come true and they all end in like alcoholism and <laughs> sadness was just not a message that I, I really, it was, it touched a nerve in a way. And I think that it speaks to his incredible skill and incredible portraiture of 
human life that for me, I could be seeing the parent-child relationship thing because of something going on in my life and this moment in my life. And for you, it could be community responsibility because you're in a moment in your life where that seems like a more present concern where we could have the same conversation in five years and we have totally shifted and felt that the most important thing in this show is the other thing or something else entirely. You know, they're very, very beautiful shimmering shows full of a lot of stuff and what you see in there I think really depends on how you're approaching them sometimes and like you were saying or the time at which you're looking and examining them or producing them or working on them so Annika why don't you take us back to before and tell us a little bit more about the genesis of Into the Woods we can never go back to before absolutely well when they started writing this show, Sondheim and Lapine had already written a show together, which is the brilliant Sunday in the Park with George, the Pulitzer Prize winning musical. And they wanted to work together again. But they had differing ideas on what they wanted to write. Lapine thought it would be interesting to write a fairy tale. Sondheim wasn't really so interested in that because he didn't really grow up with fairy tales and they didn't really occupy much of his personal story. But he wanted to write a quest story. However, when they started down this path, their initial attempts didn't really work because they found that writing a new fairy tale was too hard and most of the fairy tales that are well known were too short to turn into a full musical. But they ended up combining this idea of a fairy tale musical, a kind of quest story, with an idea that they had had for a TV show, which was that their favorite TV characters from different shows would meet together in a hospital waiting room and the show would go from there. So they took that kind of general idea, which is all these fairy tale characters from different stories and combining them into one piece. And when Lapine presented the idea to Sondheim, he promised that Sondheim would never be able to musicalize this, which of course made Sondheim insist on taking on the challenge because he loves the challenge. One interesting thing is that often when you hear people talk about Into the Woods, you'll hear it mentioned in conjunction with a book called The Uses of Enchantment, was written by Bruno Bettelheim, who was a Freudian psychologist in 1976. People say that Bettelheim's book was an inspiration for Into the Woods, because in this book, he talks about how the violence and darkness in fairy tales in their original form is actually necessary for children to, to experience, because it allows children to develop some of the mental and emotional tools to face actual hardship later in life. So instead of sanitizing these fairy tales and taking away all the the harsh elements, the dead parents and the unfairness and the darkness these characters face in these fairy tales, that is important to keep that in there. So obviously that has very serious parallels with Into the Woods, which is about these fairy tales with happy endings turning out to not be so happy and not be endings at all. However, Sondheim and Lapine have said that this, is, this book was not actually a source of inspiration for them. Uh, Sondheim has said instead that the influence was far more Jung than Freud and the idea of moral responsibility and the choices you make having consequences, which is kind of an interesting thing. You see this a lot. However, I also feel like it's impossible to say that what Bettelheim was talking about in the uses of enchantment is not in Into the Woods. So it's one of those parallel overlap things that even though perhaps it wasn't intended, it certainly is something that's a, it's a fair comparison. So in choosing which fairy tales to include in their fairy tale quest musical, Lapine and Sondheim focused on fairy tales where a parent-child relationship was integral to the story. Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood, Jack and the Beanstalk. And to weave all these stories together, they created a version of a modern TV sitcom couple in 
the baker and the baker's wife who just wanted to have a child. And of course their next door neighbor, the witch who always tells the truth. She may not be good, she may not be nice, but she's right. And at various points in development, they even had Snow White, Rumpelstiltskin, the three little pigs, lots of these grim fairy tale characters that they thought would be fun to include. So once they had a show, they needed a cast. To populate this world, they chose a lot of people who had already been in a Sondheim or Lapine show before. So there were cast members of Sunday in the Park with George, Sweeney Todd, Little Night Music, Gypsy Company, Merrily We Roll Along, or some selection of the three. There was a lot of people pulled from their existing knowledge. Uh, and there were some other people who, who joined in. Chip Zion, who ended up playing the baker, was originally cast in the first reading they did as Cinderella's prince. But even in that reading, he knew that the baker was the part for him and it ended up being the part he played beautifully. Joanna Gleason had auditioned to play the baker's wife. She hadn't been in a show of theirs before. And she tells a funny story about how she auditioned with a ballad. And after she sang, they said, do you have something up tempo? But she only had that one number. So she said, no, but I can sing this one fast. And so from that, she ended up booking the show, which was great because she was a stellar baker's wife who ended up winning the Tony Award for it. She's, she's incredible. I, she's just incredible. She's incredible. Yeah. There's a funny story about her as well. As the show was happening and being written and changing, she was on the phone with Sondheim talking about how she didn't really understand the baker's wife having a tryst with Cinderella's prince. She couldn't quite wrap her head around that plot point for her character. She told Sondheim that she felt like she was in the wrong story. And Sondheim loved that line and told her that he was going to steal it. So the line for the baker's wife, this is ridiculous, what am I doing here? I'm in the wrong story that she sings in the second act is entirely due to Joanna Gleason's confusion about her character. The only time Sondheim says he's ever stolen a line from an actor. Some other people came together in a, in a fun way. Robert Westenberg, who played Cinderella's prince and the wolf, came into rehearsal on the first day and asked Tom Aldridge, who played the mysterious man, who Kim Crosby was, that's your wife, Tom Aldridge replied, meaning that she was playing Cinderella, who obviously is the spouse of Cinderella's prince. But Westerberg said he had seen her and knew that she was also his wife in life. And that was true. They ended up getting married and they're still together today. And of course, iconically, Bernadette Peters played the witch. And it's funny, there's two different versions of how Bernadette Peters ended up with that role. According to her, she was talking to James Lapine, who had mentioned that the role was still open. They were still looking for someone. And she said, I'll do it. Sondheim says that he remembers approaching her with the songs and the story first, and it was a little bit more conventional. Of course, Bernadette Peters had played Dot in Sunday on the Park with George, so both Lapine and Sondheim knew her very well. Either way, she played the role, and it was iconic, and she had the best hair of all time. So Into the Woods played its out-of-town tryout at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego for about six weeks. And while at the Old Globe, Lapine and Sondheim really dove in and made tons of changes to the show that are detailed very nicely in Look I Made a Hat, including refining the three soliloquy-like songs for the three fairy tale characters that audiences knew going in, Cinderella, Little Red, and Jack. Those three iconic songs becoming I Know Things Now, Giants in the Sky, and On the Steps of the Palace. Though there's a great story too about how he had written all these songs previously to recount their experiences on their various adventures and Lapine's wife actually said, I don't think you need to say what's already happened. We know what happened. We need to know how it impacted them and how they feel about it. And Sondheim was like, duh, of course. Why didn't I think of that sooner? That's like everything that I do in life. A fun story about how a great note can really impact a show for the better. 
I love stories about good notes. And truly, they made a lot of great changes while they were in San Diego, including adding No One Is Alone as the anthem of the show that really drives home their two ideas of parent-child relationships and communal responsibility, that you don't live in a vacuum. We are all in this together. Right after Cinderella has kind of become Little Red's new mom and the baker has become Jack's new dad. So Into the Woods opens on Broadway on November 7th, 1987 at the Martin Beck Theater, which is now the Al Hirschfeld Theater on 45th Street. And it got mixed reviews, but encouraging audience reaction and was ultimately nominated for 10 Tony Awards and won three for Best Book and Best Score and Best Actress in a Musical for Joanna Gleason's performance as the Baker's Wife. Notably, it was the same year that Phantom of the Opera opened on Broadway, and we all know the mega hit that that became. So Into the Woods and Phantom of the Opera have always had a little bit of a rivalry in the hearts of musical theater nerds everywhere. But before the original production closed, they managed to record it with almost the entire original cast for PBS's American Playhouse series. This version was subsequently released on video and DVD, and how many people saw the show for the first time, myself included. Yeah, that video, I think, was a huge part of a lot of people's childhoods. Interestingly, it was also filmed over three different performances and with seven cameras, which is a pretty large production, particularly for the time, but also is part of the reason that taping is so successful, because it's really the best way the show could possibly ever go. Yeah, they didn't just stick a camera in front of the stage and press play. They they really made it a, a viable screen performance as well. So the show hops the pond to London, not with the original production, but... The authors wrote a brand new song called Our Little World to have a warm mother-daughter scene song between Rapunzel and the witch, really helping make Rapunzel a bit more of a three-dimensional character and giving the witch a motherly warmth that helps us understand her arc in the show. The song was so successful that it's now an option when you license the show. You can add it into the show or you cannot. It's dealer's choice. Since the original production, there have been a few different revivals of the show, including one on Broadway in 2002, which made a few different changes, like having two wolves instead of just one wolf. Obviously, it was both princes playing wolves instead of just Cinderella's prince doubling as the wolf. There was also a celebrated 2010 outdoor theater production in London that transferred to New York and was done at Shakespeare in the Park, the Delacorte in Central Park, and a roundabout production by the Fiasco Theater Company, which drastically reduced the cast size and made a small sort of story theater production out of it. It's also a favorite at schools and regional and amateur theaters. So it's done a fair amount. It gives obviously a lot of different parts for a lot of people. So that's very appealing. There was also a movie version in 2014 made by Disney with Meryl Streep as the witch and directed by Rob Marshall, who directed the very successful film version of Chicago. But it wasn't the first attempt at a movie version. There had been at least three previous attempts, most notably in 1990, when Columbia Pictures announced it and film a movie with Cher as the witch, Robin Williams as the baker, Goldie Hawn as the baker's wife, Steve Martin as the wolf, and Danny DeVito as the giant. Unfortunately for us, because I would be fascinated to see that version, nothing happened with that beyond a reading. Although Columbia did try twice more, once with Jim Henson Productions, and then again in 1997 with Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan, and Susan Sarandon rumored to star. All of those different attempts fell apart and the rights went to Disney, who did make the film. So a lot of interesting what-ifs there. A lot of interesting what-ifs, and interesting that the show kind of happens 
in the wake of The Princess Bride becoming a cult hit movie. And those two pieces obviously have interesting tonal similarities. But all the more fascinating that the king of fairy tales, the Walt Disney Company, ends up making the movie, which is incredibly ironic because it's such a departure from what they normally produce. I just find that fascinating as a as a lover of Disney too. Like I would think Disney is the most unlikely to make the Into the Woods movie. Yes, because in many ways the show almost deconstructs fairy tales and says that the happy ending you think you're getting is not the ending at all and not often happy. So it is funny for, for Disney to have approached that, but I'm glad they did. And with that, we've come to the special segment of our program where Annika does a deep dive with one of the songs from the show. So Annika, why don't you take us into the words and tell us a little bit more about A Very Nice Prince. All right, so Sondheim is difficult to analyze, not because he's actually difficult to analyze, but because there's actually so much and so much richness and depth in all of his songs, both lyrics and music, that you can kind of talk forever about any song that you analyze. So I've chosen one that is a minute and 25 seconds long on purpose, because even in this minute and 25 seconds, you get a really nuanced portrait of both characters who are participating in it. And it shifts both of their trajectories in ways that are really immensely important for the show. Uh, Just in this little tiny snippet of song that at first glance seems like it's not perhaps super full of depth, but you'd be wrong to think that. And I'll show you why. So if you'd like to listen to the song before we start, I'm not going to play it in full. I will play little chunks of it. So if you want to pause now and go and listen to a very nice Prince, which is a part of a triple track if you go to the original Broadway cast recording. So you can listen to it for about a minute and 30 seconds. Uh, You can pause here, go listen to the song, and come back. If you don't want to do that, and you want to just keep on going, let's dive in. So this song happens midway through the first act. We've already gone into the woods. Some stuff has already happened. This song is Cinderella and the baker's wife. Cinderella has already gone to the grave of her mother, gotten the dress that she's going to wear to the ball. She's already uh, had the birds help her out with the first trial. She's gone off to the ball. She's run away from the ball into the woods, being chased by the prince, run into almost literally the baker's wife who is there helping out the baker with his quest, with their quest, I should say, to find the elements they need to break the spell it's not yet the first midnight so it's still sort of in the in the beginning of things but we already know who these characters are and we know a little bit about them already so this is the song that happens right after the prince has come and asked the baker's wife if she has seen cinderella the baker's wife has lied and said she has not pretty much so then the baker's wife has asked cinderella what the prince is like and this is the answer very nice ball and and when i entered they trumpeted and the prince oh the prince yes the prince well he's tall all right so here right away we have some very fun and interesting stuff even the instrumental at the beginning of this before this has properly started tells us a little bit about what we're about to see there are two major elements in the orchestration which is by jonathan tunick who frequently does does the orchestration for sondheim shows we've got this sort of 
plodding repetitive piano part that's repeating but staying contained and the buzzing strings that are kind of coiled with tension underneath. So even though we don't quite know it yet, we're hearing an instrumentational representation of each of these characters. Cinderella, who's going to have to be kind of searching around for what she's saying, is in that piano part, which is kind of hitting those those same notes again and again. And it's a little bit scattered, but not really. It's more contained, but it's a little bit all over the place, right? And then the baker's wife, who's just cannot wait to hear everything about the prince, about this ball, is like those strings. She's just waiting. She's just can't wait to hear all about all that happens in this night. So we already have something there. And then, of course, we have Cinderella's answer, which is the beginning of the song, because we're diving right in here. He's a very nice prince. He's a very nice prince. It's the perfect answer because it's about as pedestrian as you can get, right? She's talking about a prince, the prince of the land. She's gone to a ball. We all know this story. Everybody at the ball has been blown away by her, including her stepmother and her wicked stepsisters. She's just taken the world by storm and she's gotten what she wanted, right? We saw her in that first scene she had with her mother at her at the grave saying, I want this more than anything, more than life, more than the moon. And now she's kind of talking about it like it was a book club, club meeting, right? Nice is such a sort of weak word in terms of feeling things. Oh, it's nice is kind of damning with faint praise. So it's funny right off the bat because they're undercutting our expectations to such a degree, but it also tells us a lot about Cinderella because previously we've known that she's virtuous and kind and deserving, but this is actually a glimpse into her personality as it's forming. We're really watching her discover this stuff. She's practical and she's not really ultimately super impressed by the stuff that she found at the ball, right? She wasn't knocked away by any of this. This is just what she can say about it. He's a very nice prince, right? And nice is slightly elevated there, that note, nice prince. But again, it's, it's not, we know that she's not feeling that this is an amazing, this is not a, an amazing high note for her. It's something much more reasonable. But in contrast, of course, the baker's wife is totally different. She's the one who we've seen to be practical. We've, we've thought that she was the one who was much more down to earth, but she's aching for this gossip. She wants to hear every detail about the prince. And their exchange here is hilarious because you can feel how frustrated the baker's wife is at Cinderella being totally unable to describe anything well enough, right? All the baker's wife wants is all the details. She wants a description of everything in that room. She wants endless descriptions about the prince she wants to know everything about the prince but cinderella is just giving her this very pedestrian not very exciting account of what happened at the ball so it's it's so funny right off the bat but we're also learning a lot and sometimes done a very clever thing here by saying by having the repeated and 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 you know it's it would be funny alone if the baker's wife was saying and and, and, you know, nudging Cinderella for this stuff. But the fact that Inder Cinderella says it back really shows you how much Cinderella, this is not on Cinderella's mind, right? She's not really running through every detail of the ball in the way that we know the, the baker's wife probably would be. When she's prompted with and, she repeats it, indicating that she's kind of like filling time before she can find the answers. She's reaching for these answers. It's not only not on her mind, it's something she has to kind of go searching for. She's not really thinking about it at all. It's really playing with our expectations even more and makes for both a really funny scene song, but also 
telling us how she's feeling about it. And I love in this original cast recording, this is Kim Crosby doing playing Cinderella and Joanna Gleason, of course, is the baker's wife. Before she has the line, when I entered, they trumpeted. She has this little intake of breath. That's what's exciting to her. They trumpeted for her. That's fun, you know? Which is funny because we know that the baker's wife doesn't want the details of the trumpeting. She wants the prince and the prince. Oh, the prince, right? Again, Cinderella is not even thinking about the prince. Oh, right. The prince. The prince was there. Well, he's tall. That's all she can say about this handsome prince, right? Which is great. And of course, we've just seen the prince. So not only is it a detail about the prince that's not very exciting at all, it's a detail we don't even need because the baker's wife just saw him. She knows that he's tall. Is that all? Did you dance? Is he charming? They say that he's charming. We did nothing but dance. Yes. And, and it made a nice change. Oh, the prince. Oh, the prince. Yes, the prince. He has charm for a prince, I guess. Guess? I don't meet a wide range. So, and we're going back to this. We sort of have a, a repetition of this first uh, chunk. And again, um, we're having the same the same problem. The baker's wife is trying again, right? Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And Cinderella really can't can't give her that much more. We can sense in her line, we did nothing but dance. The way that it sounds in the music, it sounds a little bit like Cinderella was kind of bored by doing nothing but dancing. This was not really that exciting for her, ultimately. And certainly not not in a blasé way, not in a, I wish we're, there was something new, but there's something kind of bittersweet about it, right? I think she's discovering in this song how much this isn't that exciting for her. She didn't know this before. This is a surprise to her that she's not, she didn't have the experience at the ball that she thought she was going to. This is not the same character that we saw earlier who wanted this more than the moon, more than jewels, more than anything, right? This was her dream to go to this festival, to go to this ball. And now she's gone to the ball and we can hear in these, these kind of small contained melody that it, it really wasn't blowing her mind in the way that I think she she thought it would. So it's a discovery. It's it's nothing she knew, but it's also nothing she really wants to talk about that much. And then, of course, we have that amazing line, which I love so much. Um, he has charm for a prince, I guess. And the baker's wife is growing here. She's not getting the answer she wants, and she's realizing that she can't just ask Cinderella. She can't just prompt Cinderella. So she's giving her more, right? Is he charming? They say that he's charming. And Cinderella makes the very good, very logical point about, I don't meet a wide range, right? They're shifting here. The practical baker's wife is the one who's becoming the dreamer more and more. And Cinderella, who was so much the dreamer, who had these big metaphors with, you know, I want it more than anything, more than the moon, is the one who's becoming surprisingly logical here, right? She can't really comment on whether the prince is charming. She doesn't have a lot to compare it to, right? That's a very funny thing to say. It doesn't really matter how many princes you've met to be compared against. You can probably say if someone's charming, but for her, it's not really enough, right? She has a brain that needs to put things in its place that way. And also it's underlining yet again that she was not really blown away by this prince who she's been running away from. So, you know, this is not a surprise for us. And then we shift into something else here. Did he bow? Was he cold and polite? And it's all very strange. Did you speak? Did he flirt? Could you tell right away he was royalty? Is he sensitive, clever, well-mannered, considerate, passionate, charming, as kind as he's handsome, as wise as he's rich? 
Okay, so here we have something uh, which is interesting. So after I don't need a wide range, we get the baker's wife and she's switching into this dreamscape. She's kind of like gone off into this world of, did he bow? Was he cold and polite? Did he flirt? Could you tell right away he was royalty? She's populating this in her mind without the help of Cinderella, right? She's not actually getting an imagination fiesta from Cinderella, so she's, she's just doing it herself. She's going off on her daydreams. Did he speak? Did he flirt? Could you tell what right away he was royalty, right? This is kind of, it sounds like a girl with a crush to some degree. But Cinderella's off in her own reverie here. She's shifted from the conversational Cinderella that she was before, who had to be kind of prompted with everything, right? And wasn't giving the baker's wife a ton to the line. And it's all very strange. She's now starting to think of this for herself. That line is kind of for herself as much as it is for the baker's wife. It's all very strange. We don't really know what that refers to here. It could be a few different things. It's just super bizarre that this girl who was basically a servant in the house is in a beautiful ball gown and she went to a ball and the prince danced with her all night. Sure, that's very surreal, but I think she's also talking here about her own reaction to this, right? She's just said, I don't meet a, a wide range of princes. And it's all very strange, right? It's strange to her that she's having this reaction to this particular event, that she didn't find that getting this dream come true was actually a dream come true. And then we're going to build on this in this moment here. I'm going to back it up slightly so you can hear this again. As wise as his riches, he everything you've ever wanted. I know, I know. But how can you know what you want till you get what you want and you see if you like it? What I know, all I know is I never wish. What I want most of Just all reason is to know what I want. When you know you can't have what you want, where's the profit in wishing? Okay, so then we get this very packed, dense little section that has a lot of information. So, and I should also mention before before I move on, this great thing that Sondheim has done where the ba the baker's wife, her reverie about what he is, is he handsome and charm, clever, well-mannered, considerate, kind as he's handsome. That, of course, this it's building, building into this rapture, right? He's, she's just overwhelmed. This is coming so fast. She's she just, he's just the dreamiest here, building to this, is he everything you've ever wanted? And of course, this is the exact same thing that the prince is going to sing about himself later in agony, which is really clever because not only do we have a sort of sense of what that world is, that, that all the women dream of this prince in this way, and he's very aware of that, he agrees with them that he is all of these things. They're also dropping in this kind of setup for what happens in the second act, that the baker's wife thinks of the prince the way that he thinks people should think of him, because he is all of these things. Cinderella does not, which is partially why he's so drawn to her, right? We know that she's, she's kind of hard to get because she doesn't think of him like this. She doesn't have this sort of explosion of of reverie about how handsome and wonderful she is. She's, she's kind of uh, not convinced. So there's a nice thing there about why the prince and Cinderella are kind of drawn to each other or why the prince is drawn to Cinderella, really. I think, I think it's kind of clear that Cinderella is never really that interested in the prince, besides knowing that she sort of should be because she's the peasant maiden who, and he's the prince. But also that we have the Easter egg of 
why the baker's wife is going to have this tryst with him in the second act because we know that she has this kind of crush on him and also just how the prince usually interacts with women this is the usual reaction that he gets from women they usually fall all over themselves to be with him cinderella does not you know it's there's a lot going on in that moment and then of course at the end of that line she has is he everything you've ever wanted with this this is probably the most feeling full a rapturous line in this entire song section right it just this high note everything you've ever wanted that's that's what a prince is right everything you've ever wanted and cinderella and these lyrics are a little bit hard to hear because they're also sondimian clever which which is everything sondheim writes is so smart on so many levels but to that cinderella says would i know she doesn't know if that's everything she's ever wanted right she doesn't really know what she wants yet that's what she's discovering in this moment in this song right and the baker says well i know she doesn't have that same problem she's more mature perhaps more sure of herself but also they're coming from different parts of, of life right the baker's wife has more imagination and maybe is just less careful than cinderella or less philosophical than cinderella it's easier for the baker's wife to say that's everything i've ever wanted right but cinderella's developing already in this little chunk here into someone a lot more complex than the person that she was before right she c doesn't feel comfortable saying that that's everything she's ever wanted and then we're going to build upon that because Cinderella, who has been kind of removed in the beginning of the song and just sort of answering the baker's wife questions with these almost passive, like, it's all very nice, right, is suddenly really engaged with this discussion when she's driving the building melody here with what she says, which is, but how do you know what you want till you get what you want and you see if you like it, right? Mirroring what the baker's wife, the melody he, she's just said about the prince, but her passion is, how do you know what you want until you get it and then you see if you like it right this is a new thought for cinderella but it's something that she's that she is going to define her really that's her realization and it's coming halfway through the first act so she's going to have others but sometimes what you want you can't really know if it's what you want until you get it and you see if that's really what you want and interestingly enough it mirrors what her mother said at the grave which is are you sure what you wish is what you want right what Cinderella has discovered here is that what she wished is maybe not what she wanted, but it's a complex place for this character to be. And then after she says that, how can you know what you want till you get what you want and you see if you like it, the baker's wife says, would I know? That's her chance to say that. So just as she said, is the prince, is the handsome prince, everything you've ever wanted? And Cinderella said, well, would I know? Because she doesn't know what she wants. Now the baker's wife, in answer to that question, how do you know what you want? until you get what you want and you see if you like it. The baker's wife says, would I know? And what she means by that is what she expounds on. I never wish just within reason. And then says, when you know you can't have what you want, where's the profit in wishing? So this is a tremendously complex little moment for the baker's wife, who previously to this moment, we've seen as someone who seems happy with her life with the exception of the child she cannot have with the baker. That's what she's set out to, to find in the woods. But now we're getting something a lot more complicated than that. How can you know what you want till you get what you want and you see if you like it? Would I know? She says, I don't wish just within reason when you know you can't have what you want, where's the profit in wishing, right? She's basically saying here, I can't say that 
that's a good philosophy because I never get what I want. I don't wish for things because I know I won't get them, right? And she says it in this fairly interesting way. When you know you can't have, what's the profit in wishing? Where's the profit in wishing? Which obviously reminds us of who she is. She's a peasant. She's a baker's wife. She lives a sort of contained life that doesn't feel like it has a lot of opportunities to go to balls and and dream big, really. As opposed to Cinderella, who's in this kind of counterpoint to this, even though they're both sort of in their own worlds here, figuring out this stuff for themselves, Cinderella says, all I know is what I want most of all is to know what I want. So they both really shifted in this little tiny one minute and two, 25 seconds worth of song here. The baker's wife has gone from someone who seemed very grounded, very practical, happy, settled in her marriage. Her dreams, although they were having trouble being achieved because of this curse, were fairly reasonable. She wants to have a child, right? But what what we've learned from her in this little section of song is that she actually is much more imaginative, much more romantic, and that she's a little bit frustrated with part of her life. She wishes she could dream bigger, but she doesn't really allow herself to because she knows she's not going to get it, right? There's something very sort of bittersweet about that. Whereas Cinderella, who he met as this dreamer, has now shifted to being the opposite. She's gotten what she thought she wished for and has suddenly realized, or not suddenly, over the course of the song, realized that it's not that simple, that she has to have gone to this ball and gotten her wish ostensibly to realize that maybe that's not what she wants. And that the bigger, scarier thing for her is that she doesn't really know what she wants. So she's not really at the point of realizing that this is not what she wants yet. She's only at the beginning of that realization. She's towing the water. But I think we can tell here in her melody line and in the way that she's framing this, that it's ultimately not going to be what she really wants in her life. But she's finding that she's discovering herself and she's discovering that she's, she's really logical and she's really practical in a way that we didn't realize she were. So they've, they've in essence switched places over the course of this song. That of course is going to be key for them going off into where they go in the second act. When Cinderella leaves the palace, she has that great line at the end about my father's house was a nightmare. The prince's house was a dream. I want something in between. She's going to really find her own path, walk her own path, choose her own life, even if it's something that seems ridiculous to the people around her because who wouldn't want to be in a palace with a prince and be a princess. And the baker's wife is going to do something that might otherwise seem out of character for her, which is to have an affair with the prince, a brief affair, certainly not like an emotional affair. It's just really a, a tryst with the prince when we think she's happy with the baker. But we've seen here the seeds have been planted of a discontent and a, and a crush that she has and, and a longing for something a little bit beyond her happy life, which really has nothing to do with her unhappiness in her marriage or in her life. But it has everything to do with her being someone who has dreams a little bit beyond her scale, a little bit of beyond the boundaries of her current life. And then we get this beautiful line at the very end. Here we go. He's a very nice prince. And of course, it's the exact same line as the first line of this song with the same melody, almost, except for it, it 
ends on a much more unsettled note. They're both singing the same thing, but we know it's it means different things. For Cinderella, he's a very nice prince, sounds a little disappointed, right? Sounds a little bit like she's thinking about the fact that he's nice, but maybe he's not more than that. And analyzing her own feelings about that there or realizing her own feelings after she said this thing about what I, I wish I knew what I wanted, right? It's kind of that same midline damning with faint praise. And for the baker's wife, it feels a lot more wistful, right? He's a very nice prince. She can't really allow herself to dream, but she does dream a little bit of the prince, even if she knows that it's unlikely and impossible. So it's wistful for both of them, but for very, very different reasons. And it's really just the fact that it, I mean, the song doesn't end there. Then they, you know, the baker's wife spots Cinderella's shoe, the, the beanstalk happens. This is just, this isn't even a real complete song unto itself. It's just a little piece of this, but we've gotten so far over the course of this and learned so much about these two characters who we now know a lot better than we did before and that's really what's possible in these musicals especially with Sondheim who's so complex he's so psychologically complex and he the portraits that he paints of his characters in the songs with the music with the lyrics with their interaction is just as deep in fact perhaps a little more so than what can be done in scenes because it's given this music so you really you can hear in this music how unexcited (laughs) Cinderella is by her account of the ball you can hear how excited the baker's wife is to hear all of this and the prince how much bigger that music is for for her than it is for Cinderella so there's really so much that's been achieved here in this in this little section in which it doesn't seem like much plot stuff has actually happened, right? It's a conversation between these two characters from different stories about how the ball was okay, right? And yet we know so much more. So it's just another example of how brilliant Sondheim is. And one of the interesting things about this song too is that a lot of this ended up being cut. It's on the original cast recording, but it's not in the published script now, which is such an interesting statement about how good Sondheim stuff is that even something like this, even something so rich can end up on the cutting room floor. And that brings us to a segment we call, how do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the problems the show faces both internally and externally. So it's been funny as we revisited Into the Woods that there are actually a lot of internal logic problems within the show, timelines that don't work, things that don't quite match up when you start to really dive into the details and start to examine the text closely. Anika, what are some of the things that stood out to you on your reread? Well, one of the things that I've always found kind of funny about the show is what I call the Rapunzel conundrum, which is that we find out that the baker's parents were pregnant with another child, that the witch took and that child is obviously Rapunzel when the baker is told this he has no this is a total shock to him that he has a sibling at all but usually the baker is cast with someone who's in their 30s safely like around 35 certainly older than how Rapunzel is usually cast which is usually someone who's in their early 20s perhaps someone who's really still in the cusp of childhood but that kind of 
brings up the question of how is that possible? So if the baker was already born and the witch cursed the family with barrenness after the birth of Rapunzel, then the baker must have been alive already. But if he has no memory of ever having a sibling, he must have been so young that he wasn't really aware of what was happening, which would mean that he can only really be like a year or two, maybe three years older than Rapunzel. But you don't want to cast someone who's 24 as the baker and someone who's 20 as Rapunzel. But you, but it's strange if you have a baker who's 35 and Rapunzel who's 32. So it's just kind of a tricky thing. I guarantee you, most people who see this show and are not pedantic dramaturgs will not even notice this. I've brought it up to people who have seen the show many, many times and never really been aware of this. But I always think it's kind of a funny little logical trickiness there. Well, it's interesting, too, because so many of the fairy tales that we grow up with have all these logical loops and things that really just don't make sense. And we don't question them. They're just a part of the narrative that we have grown to know. And it's all those facts are dropped within the first 10 minutes of the show. But we never investigate it further, probably because the baker doesn't really continue to question it. It's just something that happens. Like, they become so wrapped up in their quest, he never engages with the fact that he's never met this sister she's alive and presumably does he realize that he meets her for 30 seconds before she gets killed in act two i mean i i don't think that those things link i i don't think he is thinking of family in that way so it's an interesting problem to dive into yeah and certainly you're right i mean they're working within a fairy tale set of rules which means that they have a lot of leeway to simply drop information in the way that fairy tales do i mean we talk about the curse where you know there's never really a set of rules or explanations given for why the witch can't have touched the ingredients that go into the goblet that somehow cure her of being an old you know like there's a whole world of stuff that happened to get to that place and we don't question it because in fairy tales that's how it happens and in many many magical worlds that have been created we don't really question the magic or the logic of the magic harry potter game of thrones i mean go on and on and on they it's one of those things that we just don't really dive into yeah and when you're making a show you have to be very aware of the world in which you're working and what that means for the rules of your show you know something that's said in the world of magical realism gives you the ability to do things that you don't have if you're doing a very naturalistic play set in you know in a contemporary living room so a lot of these things we don't really even question and it doesn't really stop your enjoyment of the show clearly it's just funny to kind of think about these little things like we talked about a little bit too in the second act the giant and the size of the town versus the size of the giant and how how many paces the baker's wife has gone away like how is nobody aware of where the giant is at a given time if she's enormous and killing people by stepping on them you know you'd think that everybody would be very aware in this little town of where she was but right the only textual evidence we have of how big the giant is is based off of jack saying that he buried the baker's wife in a footprint which means that the foot is at least you know five five well, but the witch also has a line. Have you ever seen a... Um, oh, with 40 foot feet. With 40 foot feet, yeah. Which I I assume we have to take as a, an exaggeration because then we're dealing with a whole different ball game. <laughs> so let's. I'm going to do this math really fast live here. So if we assume that the witch is true, that the feet is 40, 40 feet. We're, we're talking about span, right? We assume that that's like a... That's length. That's length. So yeah. like my adult male foot is 10 inches long so let's so 
10 so let's say the, the footprint is roughly one foot, basically. Yeah, roughly one foot. So, so that would mean it's 40 times the size. So that yeah. means that it's the giant is like about 240 feet tall. Right. Okay. Which means that it's basically, it would be basically the giant would be about the size of a, less than a football field. That's a big giant. It's a giant. It's certainly a giant, and someone that's walking around like that could certainly do some damage. I mean, because like three feet into three feet is a yard, so yeah. two forty divided by three, three—that is could, perfect. It's eighty yards. Could they hear her from that height? She's loud. Two hundred. Let's see how tall a building a, a two hundred forty foot tall building. I wonder which came first, that lyric or these calculations for them. Fourteen feet is the height of each story. So 240 divided by 14. So it's basically the giant would be as tall as a 17-story building. That's too tall. So okay, like a 17-story building. I bet, I bet Sondheim just wanted the lot, the riot. The uh, I'm sure. But like, but again, it goes to the like devils in the details. And devils in the details. That's a very, that's a very tall giant. That's too big a giant. It's, I'm sure they're not going for a literal something, but it's interesting that when you break down the details, like, how tall is this giant? Why, if the baker's wife is only going 100 paces, can Little Red not see the giant if they're that big? 100 paces is not, you know, yeah, not that far away. So, again, not something that I think a ton of people think about. It doesn't prevent you from enjoying the show, but it does raise interesting questions that I would love some answers on. So, Annika, obviously, Into the Woods premiered in 1987, height of the AIDS crisis in America. And many people thought it was a sort of parable for Americans dealing with the AIDS crisis. The authors have refuted that. But what is your overall, what are your thoughts on that? I always think that's really interesting because what people are seeing is that the character of the giant, especially in the second act, comes through just takes over the normal happy lives of everybody there, uh, decimates, kills indiscriminately. It really doesn't, it's not based on what the characters have done or who they are. It's just a destructive force that lays waste to the world that, as we know it and has a huge, huge decimating effect on everything, which obviously is exactly what happened with AIDS, this disease that came through and changed the world as we knew it and, and just killed so many people. So you can't deny that that's certainly an apt comparison. And it's interesting when you get something like this because the writers have said that they didn't have that in mind when they were writing it, but it's also not untrue that you can see that in there. So I think this is this really speaks to the fact that shows and art in general, books, whatever it is, whatever has been created by someone has a life beyond what the author's intent sometimes is. And if it's good, if it's a good piece of art, it will resonate well beyond the original intentions potentially. And people will find meaning in it beyond what was initially set out to be its parameters. So I think this is a really good example of that. Is it intentionally in the show? No. Is it certainly something that resonates from the time period in which it was written? Absolutely. Would it be wrong to do a production that makes that comparison more explicit? I don't think so. I think if you can find it in there and you can find a textual and uh, and you can find textual support for it, you can certainly make an argument of how you want it to be shaded. So I think it's a really interesting thing. And obviously as a younger gay man who did not live during the AIDS crisis, because it 
was so impactful to the gay community. I think it's hard to divorce Stephen Sondheim's existence as a gay man from the AIDS crisis. And we didn't know how it was spreading. We didn't know a lot of things about it. And it was this invisible monster. So whether or not they intended, the influence of it certainly exists within the piece because it's a real life example of a similar circumstance of something that kills indiscriminately. As much as they might not intend, I I agree that it exists within it, I think. And I think it's really interesting too, because fairy tales themselves have existed in one way or another in every culture on earth, pretty much. And in some ways, the same tales are told, they're told throughout time. They resonate with a sort of human experience. But part of the reason that they do is because you can take their lessons, you can take their morals, you can take that those scenarios and bring them into your own life in a way that makes them never really fall out of relevance. And I think there's something sort of tremendously beautiful about the fact that this show is made up of fairy tales is finding that same existence as a show unto itself. And that brings us to our favorite segment, our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things where we talk about some of our favorite things about Into the Woods that I know we have many, but we'll limit ourselves to three apiece. So Annika, what's your, what's your, in no particular order, what's your first favorite thing about Into the Woods? Okay, well, I have to get especially nerdy right now. So Into the Woods was kind of, if there can be said to be a gateway show for me, because I was going to show since I was very young, this would probably be it. And it is a show that I wrote my grad school thesis about partially. So basically what I wrote about my grad school thesis was something that has fascinated me about several of Sondheim's shows. This one included, this one probably has the most obvious case of it, but there's this phenomenon that comes back a few times in Sondheim shows, which is that your narrator character will disappear, in essence, kind of get cannibalized into the text, which is something that's obviously unusual for a standard narrator trope. So in this show, it's the most explicit because the narrator is really a narrator, a, st- a fairy tale narrator. And as we see in the second act, the characters suddenly become aware of him and decide to, to throw him to the giant basically. And they say at one point, he says, you won't know what your story is. I'm paraphrasing all this, but if you kill me, you won't know what the story is. And and they get mad at him because he is the one who doesn't, isn't experiencing all of this in the same way that he is. So I've always found that really fascinating. And if anybody cares, the other two shows that I wrote this about were Assassins, where the balladeer turns into Lee Harvey Oswald at the end in some productions, and Pacific Overtures, when the reciter becomes the emperor at the end. I hope I didn't spoil these shows for you. I can talk about this a lot. Find me later. Send me a DM. Whatever. But what I think is really interesting about that is, especially for this show, when you have Act 1, happy endings, fairy tales contained. Act 2, nothing is that simple. The world is a complicated place. You have to deal with it. This kind of movement from early childhood to adolescence and adulthood, you could say, kind of mirroring the structure here, getting rid of the narrator does a really interesting dramatic thing, which I thought was very Brechtian, even though Sondheim does not like Brecht and never likes to say that. But what Brecht did by constantly sort of separating you from the narrative and not allowing you to get too comfortable in your relationship to the narrative was make sure that you never 
separated yourself and your agency from the theater that was happening. You always had to observe it and be aware of where your position was when you were observing it. So in some ways, that's the same thing that has happened here with the narrator. You're comfortable with the narrator because there's someone who is your guide, who is your way in, but also someone who knows everything, who's omniscient in this world. So nothing too crazy is going to happen because the narrator is always there. And if it's a story that they know, then in essence, they're two steps ahead of you, right? So their very presence is reassuring because there is an answer and that character has that answer. When the narrator gets eaten by the text in the way that happens here, when he gets rejected by these characters and in essence killed and destroyed because they they don't like it, not only is it tremendously jarring for you as the audience because the rules have changed of the show, what it does is it forces you to re-engage with the entire story again in a new way because now you don't have a narrator. Now you're not being told this story by someone. Now you are experiencing it in a different way. It's really cutting the knees out from under you as, a, as an audience member. And you have to decide now what you think of all of this stuff happening because nobody is framing it for you. So it's kind of a, a hidden third level of how brilliant this show is because you have this simple contained first act, you have this much messier second act, and then halfway through this much messier second act, they make it even messier for you. It's not just that the plot becomes chaotic, the very form of the way you are watching it becomes chaotic. And to do that is so interesting and so bold that I've just always, always loved that. I found it to be a really, really effective tool. I mean, it's made a little more complicated with the fact that that character is doubled with the mysterious man a lot of the time, but you know what? That's, a, that's for a different podcast, but that's one of my favorite things about this show. There's just so much to think about with these, with the role of the, the storyteller and you as the audience being told this story. It's, it's complex in so many ways and always so interesting. Fascinating. So my first favorite thing about Into the Woods, because it was also a gateway musical for me, it was the first second level musical I think that I discovered. And what really hooked me, and I have found over the years, this tends to be true for me with all Sondheim shows, is one number will hook me in and I'll be fascinated by that one number. And subsequently I will discover the rest of the show and it's all its brilliance. But for me, what really struck me about Into the Woods was the prologue. I absolutely think the prologue is one of the best examples of what Sondheim did for musical theater, similar to Obeacon in the Country, which is another one of my all-time favorites from another of his shows, Little Night Music. But this 10, 12, almost 15 minute long number that introduces everyone, establishes all these musical themes, and gets us going. It's such an incredible use of musical storytelling. I, it's absolutely masterful. And even from the first time the narrator says once upon a time, and then you've got that bottom is meant to throw you off and make you think about this in a different way. It's masterful. There's no other way to describe it but masterful. And it's also just so damn catchy. I sing parts of the prologue to myself all the time. I, I was joking with Annika before we started recording. I was like, I... I have said, and some people know that I did a one-man version of Into the Woods in a speech competition in high school and made it to state, toss, toss. But it, it was the prologue. But I literally know every word of it. And I know every word of it. And I can sing different parts for you. And the brilliance of when people sing underneath other people. And my favorite example of that being right before the final part, the baker's trying to remember the items he has to go get. And he stumbles on the last one. 
and the baker the baker's wife comes in and helps him and right before you get into the final part of the number her vocal line in like two it's like two eighth notes she basically screams the hair and it establishes the new key for the new it's incredible it's incredible and it's such a little tiny thing that you have to actually really listen to hear but it's absolutely brilliant i i just it it turned me into a sondheim fan at a very early age and it's uh, it's just incredible uh, so my second one is the song Agony, which is, of course, for the two princes, Cinderella's prince and Rapunzel's prince, two characters that really get most of their time on stage in these numbers. And it's such an unexpected thing. You get these two princes, both of whom are sort of self-involved blowhards. They're kind of the the a broad stereotype of what you would imagine Prince Charming to be, kind of dim-witted and self, self-obsessed. And they're brothers and they they skewer each other. And of course, in this show, in any Sondheim show, you have to talk about how brilliant the lyrics are. There's so many fun lyrics in this particular song. But you also just get these kind of ridiculous layers about these characters that I always love. One of them has a thing about blood. The other one has a thing about dwarves. (laughs) As much as they're pretending to be these handsome princes who save the day, they're also these kind of silly characters at the same time and it's such a delightfully clever and really surprising comedy moment in the show and it's always a joy and it's this blustery music to go with it it's really fun I mean I always have a soft spot for characters that are this kind of the blowhard the kind of traditional manly man that gets skewered. I mean, Mila Scoliosis in Forum is a really good example. It's also because I went to an all-girls school, often the part I would have to play in these shows. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that part of, that could be why. But I think this is one of the absolute best examples. It's just delightful from start to finish. The reprise as well. And in a show that goes to some very dark places, it's a, it's a real moment of levity that's pure joy. And I love it. Totally, totally agree. So my number two along similar lines, I love the sitcom-like nature of Act One. Sondheim talks a little bit in Look, I Made a Hat about how farcical Into the Woods is, and not since he had done Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which I think is kind of one of the other few successful musical farces, that the pace of Act One and the way that Lapine weaves the stories together is pretty brilliant. And It's all rooted in situational comedy. It's not reliant on pop culture references or on little quips to get through. It's really rooted in situation and brilliantly written in the rhythm that you have the peaks and valleys of laughs that you need. It's just extraordinary. And as we were reading, I just sit there and chuckle because it's so funny and not in a, oh, you have to be smart to figure it out way. It is rooted in the human experience and then the the modernity of the baker and the baker's wife who are our surrogates in this crazy world and how insane it all is. It is for me what sets the show apart from all the other shows that I love and adore is that that pacing and that style. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty remarkable when you read the script how little time you spend with each of these stories as they switch between them really, but you you feel fully satisfied with each of their narratives. It's pretty remarkable the way Lapine has structured it. It's like a page, some, some scenes that are so iconic are like a page or two. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, boom, next next thing. It's, it's stunning. It's really amazing. 
So my number three is the very, very end of the show. After you've gone through all of this journey, you've had these characters who have ended the first act in total happiness, it seems, sort of. Second act, everything gets destroyed, everything gets broken, people die, people lose each other, people have to step up and and grow up in ways they didn't previously predict. You come to this sort of bittersweet conclusion where the characters who remain are going to kind of band together to make a new life together. And it, it's not a happy ending necessarily, but it feels like a sense of completion to some degree. It's it's resolved in the best way it can with a complicated world full of pain and, and destruction. And then very end of the show is Cinderella echoing the very first line of the show and singing, I wish. And it just breaks your heart because I think the point that the show is making in that last little sneaky gut punch, it's a little bit of a sneaky gut punch, is it's never over. You know, the, the, the thing you wanted at the very beginning of the show, in, in the beginning of the show, she wanted to go to the festival. She wanted to go to the ball. Um, and obviously she got all of her dreams and realized her dreams weren't quite what she wanted. But that story has completed. The story where they've, com- they've defeated the giant has now completed. But there's only going to be more things that happen. It's human nature to want more. It's human nature to wish more. It's human nature for a goal achieved to become something that is a a foundational place from which you want more. It just is not as simple as a story ever quite ending at all. And what they've reminded us with that last moment is that the story is never ending, that you will always be wanting something new there will always be something more happening down the road life isn't a fairy tale and it it really is such a both devastating and beautiful thing to leave us with that that there's always going to be more it's so interesting that you call it devastating because i find it so different i mean yes i i agree that it's cyclical and we're always wanting more and i agree but i've always taken it as she's wishing for the baker like she's wishing for a true love. Like I, I've always thought it's like the establishing of this new family and she has a little bit of a crush on the baker. She's wishing for the baker and blackout. And that's a, a kind of what I've always thought. A sweet, innocent, I, I want something in between, which is what the last thing she says and the baker's in between. And I've always just thought that that's what it is. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, I think you certainly could could say that. Also, I should note too, it's a wonderful, uh, Sundam does a lot of what are called leitmotifs in this show, which means that uh, repeating music that comes back and again to to emphasize certain themes. And the I wish theme is all over this show. It's, re- I mean, we could do a whole other podcast on the music and the motifs in the music alone. So I should mention that too, with how much I love that line. So my third favorite thing about Into the Woods is a particular line in act two that always gives me chills and really, I think, encapsulates the conversation the show wants you to have. And it's right after the giant has left and the witch, Little Red, and the baker and the baker's wife are debating what to do about whether or not they should go find Jack and give Jack to the giant. And Little Red says something along the lines of, this is horrible, we just saw people die. And the witch says, since when are you so squeamish, haven't you killed so many wolves and little red says a wolf's not the same and the witch replies ask a wolf's mother i think it's such a wonderful encapsulation of the conversation between that we've been having about parents and children and also this communal responsibility that we are in this together and we should be in this together and you've got to think about the people who are on the other side of a conflict 
uh, which is obviously so beautifully illustrated in No One Is Alone, which is kind of the show's anthem. I just think it's a really beautiful use of dialogue to illustrate a difference of point of view and particularly the way Bernadette Peters delivers it in that original production is so simple and honest and raw that it, it that's the only way I can read it. I think I just hear that. And I, I think it's a really stunning moment. All right. So that brings us to our final segment, why it works. So Annika, why does Into the Woods work? Well, I think as long as humans have been telling stories, pretty much we've been telling fairy tales there's just something fundamental about that form. And this is a really brilliant use of those same fairy tales to tell a new kind of story and to make a a deeper point, which is that it's not always simple that bad things happen in life, unfair things happen in life. You get what you want and you don't want it anymore. You, You lose what you want or you lose what you need and you have to move forward in some way. And the best thing you can do is gather the people around you close. And all of this is just a part of living life and growing up. And I think that it's so beautifully dealt with in the show. It's so beautifully done. It's really a treasure box of songs, of characters, of layers. You can listen to it a million times and find something new. I think it's just a classic. I totally agree. And to echo that point, it really takes these fairy tales and complicates them, but still creates this universal message of you're going to go on journeys in life. Things are going to be tough. Things are going to be hard. You'll come out of them a changed person. And really here are the guideposts that you can hold on to in some of these tough moments even if you look at the amount of quotes in the various midnights in act one, that the characters come on and say things they've learned. Some of those quotes could almost be like on a plaque. They're so thoughtful and funny. And obviously the show uses comedy so brilliantly to illustrate these points and the journey that we all go on and gives it a modern take by using the baker and the baker's wife as our entry point, as our guidepost as an audience to see this world in a unique way that we haven't really encountered it previously and uses it as a fairy tale in and of itself to have a moral and to get the audience to think about what we say to our children and how we act and how we carry ourselves in the world as a family and as a community. Well, I think we got through it all. I think we did a pretty good job, Annika. We went into the woods and out of the woods and home before dark. That was good. Ah, I was good. I can't. <laughs> Do I get points for that? I can't believe I didn't think of it. Well, then maybe I'll one up you and just say, I wish. Pink. Pink. But do you want to give the give the good people an idea of what we'll be talking about in our next episode? Why, yes, indeed. In our next episode, we will be putting Spring Awakening in the spotlight. Something a little different. My teenage years on trial. Yes. Also, actually, with with an interesting pastoral theme and metaphor hopefully mama won't bore us next episode oh love it see you next time bye everyone bye everyone This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time.